You're listening to a special edition Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting the pace earlier of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number of Fed officials. banking so system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Welcome to another Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta's Economy Matters podcast. I'm Samira Fazli with the Atlanta Fed's Community and Economic Development Team. Income inequality is all over the news headlines these days. On today's podcast, we're going to be asking how rising inequality might be affecting businesses, consumers, and workers. Income inequality and the related issue of economic mobility is a topic the Federal Reserve System has been paying close attention to. Researchers across the Fed are trying to understand how inequality could be affecting our mission, particularly our mandate of supporting full employment. And Chair Yellen has called attention to how rising inequality could be impacting access to opportunity. To help us further explore these questions, I'm talking today with Professor Stephen Fazari from Washington University in St. Louis, where he is a Burt A. and Jeanette L. Lynch Distinguished Professor of Economics. Stephen's recent work focuses on the macroeconomic effects of rising inequality and financial fragility in the U.S. household sector. His research and commentary on economic conditions and public policy have appeared in national and international media. We are also joined by my Atlanta Fed colleague, Stuart Andresen, who is the director of the Atlanta Fed's new Center for Workforce and Economic Opportunity. Stephen and Stuart, thank you for joining us today. Stephen, I'm going to start with you. Your research suggests rising inequality is part of the reason our economic growth has been so weak over the past few years. How might inequality hurt overall growth in the U.S.? A lot of other countries have higher growth rates despite having even wider um, inequality than we do. Well, I think you have to make a distinction between the way that different countries generate the growth and spending they need to drive their economy. If you take a country like China, which has a lot of inequality, but they're basically export-led. You know, their, their demand is being driven by, by rising exports, and that's the real progressive part of their, con- uh, their, their economy. They're actually trying to change things uh, and to be, be more consumption-oriented, but uh, historically, they've been export-led. In the U.S., I think it's fair to say we're a consumer-led economy, and we have been for quite some time. And so when you get rising inequality, uh, it's, it's harder to generate the demand you need to keep the economy ticking. I, I like to think of... The economy is, is a big recycling machine because what, what people earn their income, but then to keep things going, they, have, they spend that income and that, that, that spending becomes the revenue to the business that allows them to pay income in the next year. So you're just going to keep the recycling going. As more and more of the income goes to the higher part of the income distribution, this recycling doesn't work as well for two reasons. One is the rich in general spend less. They save more out of their incomes. They don't recycle as much. And also they pay a higher rate in taxes. So they just, they, they don't, put the money back into the economy to the same amount. So we have a harder and harder time you know, generating the demand growth we need to keep the economy perking along. Is your research showing this? Is it showing that people are spending less, consuming less as inequality has gone up? Well, that's an interesting question. Actually, we had less saving and more spending for much of the time from the early 1980s up until the eve of the financial crisis. And we also had rising inequality. So it seems a bit inconsistent. Uh, but I think there's an important explanation for that or a pretty straightforward explanation, and that's rising household debt. As inequality was rising, we kept consumption going, but 
in an unsustainable way because people were taking on more and more debt, especially uh, borrowing against their homes, either directly or with home equity credit lines. Uh, and the result was that the economy perked along all right until that borrowing was cut off in the crisis, at which time we had historic drop in consumption, one of the biggest drops of consumption, certainly in the post-war period, uh, looking like the Great Depression. And it really hasn't recovered. Some of my recent research uh, is, is looking at this in detail and, and trying to define the amounts of money that the households are actually spending, which is a little hard to measure because things like Medicare and Medicaid and other, other things like that really aren't things that the households spend, even though they're counted in the government's aggregate consumption statistics. And what we're seeing is that the recovery in household spending since the Great Recession is by far the weakest of any recovery since at least the 1970s, at least that's as far back as our data go. I think that's why we're seeing uh, relatively low growth, and I think rising inequality is, uh, is an important part of what explains that uh, trend. So, Stuart, I want to turn to you to reflect on uh, something Stephen just said. He mentioned how our economy operates as a big recycling machine. So for our economy to grow, for businesses to sell goods, people have to have the money to spend. Um, well, to spend money, you have to earn money. And that, in some way, is what you focus on at the Atlanta Fed Center for Workforce and Economic Opportunity. Can you tell our listeners about the work of your new center? Sure. And I actually think that there's a, there's a great connection here. We, we focus on workforce and economic opportunity, primarily focused on what you described, how workers and employers are able to address their skill needs and the role that employment and education and training play in providing economic opportunity. And we can get into a lot of different definitions of what exactly economic opportunity is, either for workers or for businesses. But it's it's roughly what we're talking about. It's able the ability to to live a life where people are able to uh, sustain their family, to to purchase goods, to to build wealth and assets and and to have some level of sustainability, stability in their life and, and resilience, able to recover from shocks that come along throughout their life. We, we focus largely on labor market issues and employment policies that affect low and, um, and moderate income individuals. The center really acts as a bridge between practice, so people that are doing work to help support people's employment and, and the research community to help develop innovative approaches to, to developing economic opportunity so that, that people that are looking for ways to, to move up the economic ladder can do that and, and that businesses are able to find ways to grow. We know that, that skill development, education, supporting people's employment is part of that picture, but it's really part of a broader mosaic of strategies that can help improve opportunities for workers. So, Stephen, Stewart's Center acts as a bridge between policy and practice. I wanted to see if we could shift to the policy level now and get your kind of policy prescriptions about what the policy implications of your research are in the short or long term, focused especially on low and moderate income workers, the ones who tend to spend the money that they earn. Right. So the the, the main objective from a policy point of view for that particular issue, there are lots of important policy uh, the objectives, but for that particular uh, objective is to get money into the into the pockets of people who will spend it. So the, the thing I would list first is a middle class tax cut. We were having a lot of talk about tax reform in the country these days. And I think we could see more economic growth to the extent that we 
we put more money back into the pockets of people who will recycle it back into the economy, and that would certainly be low-income workers, uh, moderate-income workers. And so, in fact, our research suggests that people spend the vast majority of their income pretty far up into the income distribution, although much less so at the very top. So to the extent that tax reform puts money into the, into the pockets of people who spend it, I think it'll be more effective. The second thing I would mention is an increase in the minimum wage. Uh, this is a, a controversial area, although most uh, economic research these days, empirical work, shows that job losses are not that significant when minimum wages go up moderately, and especially if they're raised in a, a state or the country as a whole rather than just in a, in a small area. So uh, that, I think, specifically can help at the lowest part of the income distribution. But there's evidence that suggests that when the, the lowest part of wages go up, you see wages going up further, uh, further up the distribution as well. And so that can, that can help uh, with issues of broadly inequality and also help stimulate consumer spending. If we're thinking about the long term, I think it's really where the bridge between what Stuart's working on and my perspective really comes in because it's the hardest part but probably the most important part, which is to see more income growth across the wage distribution, not because we legislated through minimum wages, but because that's what happens uh, you know, in the private sector ultimately. We had that kind of growth in the post-war decades where incomes were rising generally across the income distribution, but we've lost that since the 1980s. The problem there is I don't think anybody fully understands what to do and how to do that, and that's why I really appreciate what the work that, that people are doing here at the Atlanta Fed to try to, to, try to explore those issues. All right, Stuart, that means that you have the hard job of fixing this for everyone. I think that's what uh, Stephen just told us. So as we close, do you have any final thoughts on kind of work-based strategies to help improve economic mobility? Yeah, and I, I actually think that there's there's a lot going on that, that are, are attempts to do exactly what Stephen's talking about. We have different channels for those things, often things that we don't think of as employment policies. I think that one of the tricks is is that through, uh, ideally, hopefully, through skill development and finding ways to increase productivity in the long term, that's going to lead to some of those wage gains and money that's that's actually just getting paid through the labor market to lower skilled middle income workers. But as people think about in the slightly shorter term, I want to make sure that people remember that there are a lot of things that are attempting to do this. Now, do we have the best channels for them? Do we feel like they're doing the best job that they can? But there are a lot of things that we don't think of as employment supports, whether it's state-sponsored, high-quality childcare, and and programs that provide early educational opportunities, like particularly to single parents. These are things that not only provide benefits to the young child, but also help parents manage the, their family life and be available to work, to be able to get to work. There are a lot of other ones that these are, they would be completely different, but as we get to a tighter labor market, we have to think about what supports are necessary to help support people with criminal backgrounds or drug addiction issues. These are people that have found themselves with great challenges in getting into the labor market, find themselves stuck in lower income jobs and finding ways to, to support them is important. The same is true of, of things like the earned income tax credit. People often don't think of that as a workforce development initiative, but it's been one of the widely accepted and and popular uh, supports that's helped bring a lot of people out, out of poverty and support people at the lower income levels. Employment and education are part of that, but it's not always just skill development. There are a lot of ways that we're supporting 
workers. We need to think through how we can do that, how we can help to remove barriers and, and support employment in a lot of ways. That's the short term, long term. There are other things, but we've got to find ways to be thinking broadly. Uh, thank you so much, Stephen and Stuart. And that brings us to the end of another Economy Matters podcast episode. I want to encourage our listeners to check back to the Atlanta Fed's website for our Center for Workforce and Economic Opportunity to see the kind of resources that are going to be coming online through that center for those who are interested in working on the ground on strategies to improve uh, labor market opportunities and lift um, wages across the economy. Please see the Atlanta Fed's webpage, frbatlanta.org, for economic and banking information and for materials on community and economic development topics as well. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.